0: Amen. Thank you, Pastor Todd. We're always so well served when Todd prays, aren't we? Good morning. Great to see you. Thank you for being here. Excited to get into the scriptures with you. Uh, If there are parents who'd like kids to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now up through fifth grade, feel free to take them out to the patio. And uh, while they're stepping out, everybody else, you could turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, We are toward the end of the chapter here this morning, and excited to learn with you. Um, As you're turning, just a quick uh, reminder that this coming Saturday, so this just a couple days from now, we have our next Disciple Makers Intensive. So for those of you who are new who don't know what that is, uh, we have a Wednesday night equipping program, and once a semester, we get all the classes together who are part of that as well as anybody else who's in the church who just wants to learn about something related to evangelism and discipleship. Do that once a semester. This semester it's this Saturday from uh, there'll be breakfast at 8:30, 30 and uh, then the sessions will begin at 9 from 9 to noon. Uh, we'll be talking about um, a, a new revised vision statement the elders are recommending to the church and then trying to think about if um, what we'll talk about is what a church does collectively, then how do people individually fit into that? For example, uh, how, do you, how do you figure out what your spiritual gifts are if you're a follower of Jesus, and what contribution you can make specifically? And then in the last session, we'll think about the importance of trying to help um, other churches. So I hope you can make it if you're in town. Uh, but for today, we are in uh, Mark 12. And uh, as we're making our march Through this final week in Jesus' life, we come this morning to what is the last in a series of religious leaders sort of interrogating Jesus. And these have not been easy passages the last several weeks, but they are gifts from God nonetheless, because the answers Jesus gives to the questions he's asked have proven over time to be some of the most significant things he's ever said. And they're still instructive for us today. Two weeks ago, Jesus taught us on God, taxes, and government. And then last Sunday, we explored uh, resurrection, marriage, and the death-conquering manner through which God keeps his promises. This morning, as I said, we come to the last one. And in some ways, it is perhaps the one that would most readily apply to all of us in the easiest way to see. It's definitely the one that is most comprehensive because it affects all of life for all of us all the time. I want to encourage you today to lean in and to listen closely because nothing matters more than coming to terms with what Jesus says in this conversation. It may not immediately feel like it, but as we work our way through the text, I think its power and applicability will hopefully emerge for each one of us. If you would, look with me starting in verse 28, Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them, so the them is the Sadducees who Jesus was talking to last week, heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? The last several weeks, we've seen Herodians and then Pharisees and then Sadducees all bringing their questions to Jesus. This time, it's a different person. It's a scribe. Scribes were the religious scholars among all these groups. They were well educated, and even after formal education, they still spent the majority of their time studying their Bible, defending it, teaching it, and Their main job was that they they were the professional interpreters of the scriptures. They were the experts in discerning what it said and then in applying it to specific concrete situations. You may remember the group we've talked about, the Sanhedrin. That was something of the Supreme Court for the Jews. They were the people who would advise the Sanhedrin and say, well, note... Deuteronomy 5, this is actually what that means, and therefore you should do this in a particular case. The scribes were people who tended to take God very, very, very seriously, and yet some of Jesus' harshest, most severe words were for them, as we'll see next week. The question this, this scribe asked Jesus was one of very frequent debate in this day, The scribes had identified 613 laws in the first five books of the Old Testament. And that was before Google. Can you imagine counting those up? But that's what they did. They figured out in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that there were 613 times God said, Do this or don't do this. That's a lot of rules. I thought my parents had a lot. That's even more. So out of the 613, because there's so many, there naturally arose a discussion, a debate, an ongoing dialogue among religious leaders about, well, which one's the most important? Which which one sums up the others? Which one has priority? If I'm only going to really be able to remember one, which one should it be? Different scribes had different answers, and different scribes' interpretation was called their yoke. Now, not egg yoke, but rather the wooden harness that would connect to oxen as they plowed a field. That was called a yoke. The yoke had the function of spreading the burden. You may recall that Jesus once said his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. File that away. It will become important in the end of our passage. So that's, that's the question. What's the most important of all the commandments? Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Now, if you've been around church at all, this is probably a commandment or commandments that you have heard, and yet... What Jesus did in this moment was of enormous significance. There's a lot to think about, and we'll try to do our best to capture the essence of it. First, Jesus said the preeminent commandment, the thing God expects most of all, out of all those 613 commandments, God is most interested in people loving him supremely, that Comprehensively with every fiber of our being, our lives would be about loving God. Notice the repetition of the word all. We're to love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. God commands that we love Him completely. I'm first, God says. That's his expectation. That among all the people, all the priorities, all the desires in our lives, there is one that would trump every other namely, the passion, the follow through, the commitment to love God. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, human beings are made in the image of God, He's the creator. We are the created, and as such, our very obligation as humans is to do what he says. The reason for our existence is that we would love him, that we would treasure him above everything else. Now, if you look closely, you might notice in your Bible that much of verse 29 and all of verse 30 are in quotation marks. That's because Jesus isn't coming up with something new. He's reaching back into Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he's quoting it, applying it in this specific situation. So he says first, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is verbatim, word for word, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And for the Jews of the Old Testament, this was the most important verse for them. It was their equivalent of John 3, 16. When they would go to what we would call church, so synagogue, it was the first thing spoken. When they would end at synagogue, it was the last thing spoken. Many of the scribes had boxes uh, with leather Attached to them, that they would attach to their bodies. And inside that box was that verse, among others. This was their most significant, prominent, important passage. Listen up, O Israel. That's all it means. Quiet yourselves down, open your ears, hear, for God is about to speak. That's what happens when we open the scriptures. God speaks. And then it says the Lord is our God. I hope that little three letter word isn't lost on you. Our God. That God would allow his himself to be identified with a people is incredible. The Lord is our God. He's acted with power and grace on our behalf. We belong to him. And the Lord is one. Now this is kind of confusing to us perhaps. But all that that means is the the Lord is, there is no other. He's it. All the other so-called gods are mere human inventions. There is only one God. God, we might say today, is the original OG. We are his people. And as such, he commands, he demands exclusive love. Now look again at at verse 30, would you? Here, Jesus quotes from the next verse in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. However... He makes one addition. I'll read from Deuteronomy. You follow along and see if you can catch what the addition is. Deuteronomy 6:5 says this, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might." You see it? What was it? The mind. Exactly. The mind. Jesus added that we're to love God with all our minds. Now, surely the big idea here is unchanged, that we are to love God with our whole being. That being a Christian and following God means more than what we're doing right now. Not less, but much more. God gets all our affection all the time, and yet... It's clear Jesus chose with this addition to say something, to emphasize the mind. I find that pretty fascinating and important for us. Christian, do you love God with your mind? Would you say you love him even with a little bit of your mind? Do you... Place a high priority on meeting with God in his word. Do you find yourself reading good, helpful books about him? Do you engage in conversations with other people who know more than you do and whose lives are reflective of the kind of life you would like yours to become and ask them questions about what they believe and how they've gotten to the place they're at? Is your mind occupied often with working out who God is and what God might be up to and what he might want from you in a particular situation? Loving God with our minds is definitely embedded in Deuteronomy 6, in heart, soul, and might. But Jesus drew it out, and that's instructive for us in our own day. Now, I've not lived, of course, in another century, although I look like it, but it would seem to me that loving God with our minds is of particular challenge for us today. We live in a society in which 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, after that my math sucks, where we are inundated with things vying for our attention with stuff that literally makes money by distracting us friends until the last few years humanity has never known that go anywhere in public and what will you see particularly as somebody's waiting for something Right? A little bit of drool coming. You'll see faces glued to smartphones. And I fear that as our phones get smarter, we are getting stupider. I'm sure that some of that staring at phones is loving God. I'm sure of it. What would that look like? Well, reading an article, memorizing a verse... Texting a church member you haven't seen in a while. Marveling at a picture somebody sent you of a sunset. Inviting a non-Christian over for dinner that night. All of that's loving God. But my suspicion is, for most of us, that that vast majority of that time, like this, is, is nothing more than mindless scrolling. It's skimming news that isn't news. It's news that there might be news. Do you realize that's what most of the news is? It's watching um, silly videos. It's being glued to Instagram because we're afraid we'll miss out on something. All the while, what's happening? We're actually numbing our capacity to love God with our minds. Because we're training our minds to need constant stimuli in the form of images. Now, don't misunderstand me. Technology in moderation is a great gift. How many of you can get somewhere and not get lost now? This is incredible. So technology is incredible. It's a common grace gift of God. My point is not that we should ditch all technology, become Amish, live out in the woods, and churn our own butter. That's not what I'm arguing. Please don't misunderstand. But I am concerned for our minds. We're a distracted bunch. And I'm convinced the core reason many of us feel so busy is because we're constantly distracted. Mentally. Perhaps the amount of time we spend on our devices needs to change if we'll ever hope of aspiring to love God with our minds. Now, what's the first commandment? It's to love God. To love God with all our, same with me, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is certainly not being Freudian. He's not cutting us into parts. He's saying love God with all that you have. For my part, I'm not sure there's been a single hour of my entire life where I can honestly say I have loved God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. Not one. But notice, church, that Jesus didn't stop there. The the scribe asked him for one, and Jesus gave him two. Verse 31, he gave him a second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that also in your Bibles is probably quoted. That comes from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18. The, The most natural thing in the world is for one who truly loves God to find that love inevitably overflowing, spilling out into love for people. That's common that Christians today would understand that's how this at least is supposed to work. And yet, there are some scholars who believe Jesus was the very first rabbi ever to put those two commands side by side from those two passages. If that's true, then it highlights the wisdom of Jesus. Because the brilliance of this combination, love God, Deuteronomy 6, love people, Leviticus 19, the brilliance of that is seen, let's just, for one example, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, the first four are, love God. The second six are, Love people. In beautiful symmetry, Jesus said, in fact, all 613, love God, love people. Love God, love people. If you've ever driven down McClintock, just south of the 60, you may have seen a church, First Baptist, with a big sign on it that says, love this way, and then God and people. We used to live down there, and uh, one of my kids, when we would drive by that one time, uh, this particular child said, I love that sign. I love how it says, love God, people. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you something of the disposition of one of my kids. Love God, love people. Friend, do you love people? Do you love people? Some people are easy to love much of the time. Some people are hard to love any of the time. Do you love people? Not, do you act like you love them to use them for your own means? But do you freely give yourself for their good like you freely give yourself for your own good? Jesus said that's the second most important thing, commandment in the Bible. Today, both inside and outside the church, people are massively confused about what it means to love. We can't dwell here, but let me just say that loving people is not affirming them in whatever they happen to desire in a particular day. Loving them is not drinking the Kool-Aid. That identity is all about looking within and then self-expressing whatever you might feel. No, love is doing what's good for another, especially pointing them not inward, but outward and upward to the love of God. Loving people is seeking their good. It's sacrifice, truth-telling, service, laboring for their best, especially that they would come to love God supremely. So friends, this is Jesus' pronouncement, that of all the priorities God has in his book, the dominant thing he would want us to hear is, love God, people, and to love God people now the previous conversations that Jesus has had in which there's been a question from somebody and he responds it's very clear in those conversations they weren't genuinely asking they weren't asking because they didn't know or at least thought they knew they were asking with venom they were asking to trick Jesus they're asking because they were angry and wanted to get rid of him but let's see how this scribe responds verse 32 The scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the mind, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, rather shockingly, the scribe agreed. This is not what we would have expected. His response is quite different from previous inquirers. There is no opposition at all from him. And the scribe even understands something that very, very, very few religious leaders understood at this point in time. He understood that going to the temple with burnt offerings and sacrifices... That outward religious act so crucial in Judaism is secondary. It's subservient to loving God and loving people. Why? Because true religion is always a matter of the heart. To love God and to love people must spring from within. You can buy an animal, go to the temple, offer a sacrifice, all the while grit your teeth and begrudgingly obey. And God's not interested in that. God wants genuine love from the heart. You can do the external stuff, but God's most concerned with the internal. It's similar to marriage. Um, This Friday... Jill and I will be exactly two months away from being married 26 years. That's a long time for her. (laughs) Now, she recently took a new job, and let's say um, I went over to Trader Joe's, bought some flowers, bought some chocolates, drove up to her work to surprise her, and somehow I found that office, handed her the roses and chocolates, what would happen? Well, her face, of course, would light up. She'd hug me. She'd say, I love you. And then what if I were to respond? Well, it's our anniversary. It's my duty. I got to admit, I would have rather not driven all the way up here and done my own thing today. But here you go. How would she respond to that? Exactly. Austin said she'd smack me with the flowers. The rest of our anniversary would probably not go very well. Why? Because the flowers and chocolate are just external gifts that are absolutely meaningless unless they're representative of a heart that loves. The same is true for God. God is after your heart. That's the first one listed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. God is after our love for him and people first internally and only then with our actions. I'd encourage you this morning to assess your own life. Do you love God like that? Or do you bring him flowers and chocolates hypocritically? Again, for my part, I don't think there's been a single hour in my entire life in which I have loved people the way I ought. I am an utter failure at loving God. And loving people. And you are too. Loving God and loving people is impossible for the natural sinful heart. We need new hearts, converted souls, transformed minds, renewed strength. And these are all grace gifts from God. Our our only hope of actually obeying what Jesus says in Mark is that God would do something in our lives, making it possible that we could actually learn to obey. The final verse in our passage points us toward that. Verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far From the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The tragedy in this story is we're not told what happened with this scribe. This scribe had the right understanding of how things work. He he knew his Bible. He understood what God expects. And yet we see nothing of how he responded. It's left open-ended, perhaps to cause us to reflect on how we would respond. Now, in one sense, church, I think Jesus is offering the scribe a compliment. I mean, to hear from Jesus, you have answered wisely. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? In an era of time when the majority of the religious leaders were hypocrites, They were all focused on external stuff. Essentially, Judaism at this point in time had turned into a sham, focused on hollow, extreme, and externalism, devoid of genuine love for God among the religious leaders. But this particular scribe had a good head on his shoulders. And no doubt he's last in this series because he stands out as one who's so different than the others. He could articulate an orthodox, biblical, sound understanding of what the Old Testament taught. Unlike his peers, the majority of them, he discerned his Bible rightly. But it seems very likely that he failed to discern his own heart, his own need, his own failure. Now why does that matter? Well, ask the 2021 Phoenix Suns. Close is not close enough. Being close to the kingdom of God is not close enough. That is being close to God's kingdom is still being outside God's kingdom. For all that this scribe knew, he apparently had failed to understand where he was in relationship to God and his kingdom. He saw himself as being in, and Jesus saw him as being out. Despite his excellent grasp of theology, he was still on the outside looking in, being self-deceived, thinking that because of what he knew, He was right with God. Knowing a chair can hold me up is not the same thing as sitting in that chair and trusting that chair to bear my weight. To put it a different way, you can know a lot about the Bible and not know the God of the Bible. Why does that happen? How does that happen? Usually it's pride. Someone learns facts More and more and more of them. And then well-meaning people commend them on what they know. And they do the external stuff. And it looks like everything's fine. But if we never come to terms with our own failure and inability to actually love God and love people in the way that God expects. Friends, we're in the outside looking in regardless of how much we know. I hope that causes the hair on the back of your neck to stand up. One author soberingly put it this way, you can be within an inch of heaven yet spend eternity in hell. So please listen closely. Here O Church on Mill, God's preeminent commandments are that we love God and love people, which none of us have ever done perfectly. In fact, we're really good at running in the opposite direction. Everyone fails. Everyone except Jesus. That's precisely why Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In context, friends, the ones Jesus talks about, laboring, heavy laden, busted down, beat up, are not people fatigued from work, people whose school has demanded more than they can give. They're not people who went to the gym and they're tired. They're not moms with a toddler and an infant. All of those things are tiring. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is speaking about people weighed down by the yoke of a religion that told them, you can love God and love people if you just try hard enough. Listen, the scribes would say something like this, just try harder and you can love God and love people. Do it like me. And Jesus said to them, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, it is exhausting to try to relate to God based on your rule keeping. It doesn't work. What the scribes normally taught was not Christianity. Christianity says you can't earn your way into the kingdom of God by virtue of your obedience because God wants love from the heart and you're a sinner by nature at the heart. To which Jesus replies, come to me. Come to me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly. Yes, I'm the one you've spit on and offended, but I love you. Come to me. And you will find rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Now what did Jesus mean by that? Well, he meant my yoke is the gospel. It's the good news that because Jesus perfectly loved God and perfectly loved people, then he could die as a substitute For anyone and everyone else who fails to obey God's commands and will come to him in faith and repentance. Come to him in faith. And you will find rest for your soul. Friends, if you've never done so, I want to encourage you to cast yourself on Jesus. Because being close to the kingdom is not being close enough. Cast yourself on Jesus because being close is not close enough. And if you're already converted, if you've cast yourself on Jesus at some point in the past by believing in the gospel and turning from sin and trusting in him, are you still living like it? Has that become the, that faith and repentance is the posture of my life. Friends, Christians need the gospel too. The gospel isn't for the day you're converted. It's for every single moment you draw a breath. Because even after coming to know Jesus Christ, we still struggle to love God and love people. And the same grace that saved us is the same grace that will sustain us. But you got to tap into it. Have you taken up your own yoke again, Christian? The most miserable people I know are people who seem to be genuinely saved, but they've picked up a yoke of I will stay in God's graces based on my behavior." In the book of Galatians, Paul said it like this, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Friends, get off the treadmill of a works-based Christianity because that's not Christianity. Jesus is saying this morning, to all who will hear, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Church, does our behavior matter? Yes, of course. But the behavior flows out of. Hearts continually renewed and in awe of a God who would love us like that. And every time we trip and fall and fail and sin then we don't go this way toward works of trying harder. No, we turn this way and say, God, I've failed again. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. All. Years ago, there was a religious leader who was doing what everyone taught him Much like in Jesus' day, what everyone taught him, if you do these things, your conscience will be relieved. And so he excelled at doing those things. He went to school, a lot of school. He became a priest. He taught in a university. He gave himself completely to the work of the church. There are stories of him being so bothered by his inability to love God and love people and his fear of the wrath of God that he would lay on a cold, hard brick floor in order to force himself to stay awake so he could pray all night. Now I could go on and on and on and on and on about the stuff he did. But none of it worked. He remained under a yoke that he could not bear. And one day he was reading the book of Romans. Didn't have to go very far in it. Romans chapter 1, verses 16, 17, and 18. In which he heard the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. That God's righteousness, being right with God, is a gift from God, not something one attains by virtue of their works. In that moment, the gospel of Jesus Christ clicked for him for the very first time. And the world's never been the same. His name was Martin Luther. Friend... Your world will never be the same if you come to the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Before I pray for us, would you please interact with God about what you've heard? Father, I pray if there are non-Christians here this morning that you would be awakening them to this shocking, scandalous, completely unique love of God in Christ. And the way in which when one exercises trust in you, faith, belief, and turns from a life of works, that everything changes. And Lord, I also pray for my fellow brothers and sisters, those that make up this church, Church on Mill, who have in fact crossed that Rubicon of faith and repentance and have come to believe in the gospel and trust you and they're converted. God, it is so incredibly easy to slip back into a striving that is a striving that does not honor you. It's not what you're looking for. It's a striving to obey by virtue of our works to make ourselves acceptable to you. And your love is far too grand for that. You love us not because of what we do. You love us because you love us. It is a love completely unlike any other love. I pray this morning would be a seminal moment for some here to even physically be experiencing the renewal of your love for them as they turn from their yoke and embrace yours again. We ask you all of this by faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Been such a privilege to look at and, and in